Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and today I'm veering away from my normal business topics to chat with author Stuart Sobel, who has spent the last 30 years researching and refining his hypothesis about who killed Bugsy Siegel. We all know who Bugsy Siegel is. If we've paid any attention during history classes, we know who he is. Now, Bugsy Siegel was killed on June 20th in Beverly Hills, and I think that was about 74 years ago. And Stewart suggests that the Beverly Hills Police Department close the case. And his request is due to the information that he is privy to that is just one step, not two, one step removed. It is also the basis of his manuscript for Queen Bee and the killing of Bugsy Siegel. Now, Stuart Sabell is a longtime journalist, and he's a ghostwriter of multiple martial arts books. And his love of writing stems back to his days while he was still in college working for an advertising agency. So the first time, he's a first-time author in the genre of true crime, and he was given a rare opportunity for the inside scoop as of yet, which is a still unsolved gangland killing Bugsy Siegel. Now that opportunity was offered from a boyhood friend. They were grammar school friends, Robbie Sedway. Sedway was... He, he was Mo Sedway's son, and I'm tr- I'm trying to remember this story in my head, so hang yeah. in there with me. <laughs> but Stewart interviewed B. Sedway, who was Mo's wife, for almost eight years before she passed away. I'm going to quit slaughtering this and let you take over, Stuart. Welcome to your partner in Success Radio. It's good to have you here. My pleasure, Denise. Thank you very much. And you've done a heck of a job. It's hard to keep track of everything. There are so many moving parts to this story, and even even their own family got mixed up. Uh, back in 2014, Los Angeles Magazine did a story about the killing of Bugsy Siegel through uh, B. Sedway and Mo Sedway and and they couldn't even keep track of it. I made a consummate study of it and and had the advantage of speaking with B and Robbie for years and Robbie up to the time he passed away, sadly enough. And so they left me with a tremendous amount of research that I that I had done that and and just wanting to know how to put it together. In twenty seventeen I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to do it, I better do it, because undertaking a book is a lot different than a martial art book. Uh, Martial art books are some history, some techniques, but this is dealing with people's lives. And so I wanted to make sure I had it correct. And so um, in order to see if there was still interest, because in 2017, uh, it was the 70th anniversary of Siegel's death, of his death. He didn't die of a heart attack, of his <laughs> killing. <laughs> uh, and so um, uh, I, 
I hired a PR firm in Las Vegas, a friend of mine who had done some other work for me in the past, and I said, I just want to test the waters to see if there was interest in Bugsy Siegel because the anniversary would come up and nobody would do anything. And even when I realized that, I called the Beverly Hills Courier and I did a piece for them, which was interesting. They had no idea. Oh, it's June 20th. Okay. And even in Las Vegas, I spoke to the Las Vegas Sun. They said, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, we'll do something. And But that was it. It was not a big deal. And I thought, well, maybe the story isn't a big deal. So what uh, the PR firm, it was Bruce Marin uh, Public Relations, what they said is that, Everyone they contacted said yes. Nobody turned them down. So I told Bruce Marin, I said, I'm going to come in for two days, the day of his killing and the day after as I'm heading out of town. And let's just see what we can do. And so we did it. We did two TVs, two radios, and one uh, newspaper uh, columnist uh, in Las Vegas. And it was packed and everyone's interested and uh and bruce told me he says stay in i can get you more interviews i said i'll call you in three years because right now i have nothing to sell just oh, my notes. Right. so so i came back uh back into the city into los angeles and i said okay let's do it and so i started and it's one word at a time and now it's uh a uh, nice, tight, 100,000-word manuscript. And there are no issues, no questions left unanswered. Everything is there. It's like a roadmap of what happened. And believe it or not, when I wrote the piece for uh, the Beverly Hills Courier, their senior editor wrote a little piece at the end. And he said when he was 11 years old, he went to uh, the Hollywood racetrack with his folks. They had a box there. And right next to the box was their friend, George Raft. And so they, uh, and this gentleman's father was a, an award-winning cinematographer. And he had worked on uh, Raft's first talking film. So, you know, it goes way back. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Talking film. (laughs) And now we have videos. You can't go to the Walmart without somebody filming you who should not be filming you. Oh, my gosh. So so, uh, while he was there, uh, his friend Ben Siegel was in the box with him with a couple of other people. Now, he introduced Ben Siegel to this fellow's parents and to this young man named John Seitz. And so uh, uh, then that night, or the next morning, they read in the newspaper, Bugsy Siegel was killed uh, after returning from a, a dinner. He was at his girlfriend's house on North London Drive. And so... Uh, uh, John Seitz, as now the senior editor for the Beverly Hills Courier, wrote a little piece. And he said, I saw him the day he was killed. I was 11 years old. And I tracked him down uh, just recently because all of a sudden it dawned on me that he is the last person in the world alive today, the 
day, 2021, who saw Bugsy Siegel in person on the day he was killed. And when I did track him down, very affable man, very nice, knowledgeable of everything Hollywood. He said, uh, yeah, I, uh, I saw him. And I said, yeah, do you realize you were the last person alive today uh, to see Bugsy Siegel? He said, oh, there were plenty of people at the track. Everyone saw him. I said, yeah, that was 1947. I mean, today, 2021. And he stopped to think about it. I Not said, yeah, you actually saw him. And he, he saw what he wore. He saw, and everything was there. And, we, you know, it was interesting, speaking of what he wore, he was always dressed beautifully. And, and even in death, he looked great. Uh, he was so comfortable in a suit and tie, no, no tank top and backwards baseball cap for this man. He was a uh, fashion plate. Even, even in death, he had, after a long day out at the track, going with friends to, to a restaurant, coming back home, he sits in, his, uh, in, in the sofa. And if you notice, if you look at the photos, he doesn't even loosen his necktie. He still has his jacket on. He's as comfortable in a suit as he would be in a sport coat or, or a sport shirt. So the man was a real uh, fashion, uh, fashion plate. He, he dressed right. beautifully. I saw and, some of the uh, pictures, and he was quite a handsome man. And before we get a little yeah. too far away, for, for people who are thinking, why is Denise talking about Bugsy Signal? You know, Siegel, she's normally a business person. Here's the thing. History is fascinating. It really is. And you were introduced to me by a very good friend, and she said, would you like to chat with him? I said, oh, you bet. You know, I am willing to go completely off track for this interview. (laughs) So thank you, Devin Blaine. I appreciate that. But if you would, before we get too far down the road, some people are going to be saying, okay, Bugsy Signal, he was basically assassinated. But who was he? So can you kind of flesh him out just a little bit before we get back on this topic? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I went into depth on all of the characters, and I had an especially good uh, uh, a good guide into Bugsy Siegel's character because of the Sedway. She knew him intimately, and I don't mean sexually at all, and I bring that out. And she said, no, we never had sex. And I could understand after knowing the understanding the personalities of each of the people involved, I could see she could never have sex with him. He, she was married to his best friend, Mo Sedway. Mo right. Sedway, uh, he was, he, uh, Siegel was the best man at their wedding and the godfather to their firstborn, Richard. And, uh, and it would just not, it, it there's no way that could happen. No it wasn't way. wasn't in her character. She, it was not in her character okay. at all. She was she was 17 when she married Mo, and Mo was uh, 42. So he was, of course, an older man, and uh, and she was an impressionable young girl, fresh out of high school. She graduated from high school, and uh, so she's fresh out of high school. Brought up in Elmira, New York, which uh, not far from the Canadian border, and and housed uh, the one of the Finger Lakes, uh, and 
Uh, also, the Amara Reform School were a lot of the young young guys who dropped out of grammar school ended up and then came back and was part of the mob. But she never Ooh. knew them. That was not part of her her uh, her realm of friends. Uh, she had a very traditional blue collar upbringing, and she understood uh, Ben Siegel. Never called him Bugsy, and uh, and. To prove that, when uh, when Warren Beatty was making the film Bugsy, she was called in to uh, to teach uh, Warren Beatty the mannerisms, the uh, the movements, the reactions of Ben Siegel, and it's all throughout the film. But it's so subtle, unless you know what to look for, it pass you over. For example, the very Go first ahead. I'm sorry. scene. I was, I was going oh. to ask you, how did he become known as Bugsy? That's not a pretty name. It's not. He got that name as a kid, and it never bothered him as a kid. Everyone had, where they say, handles. They all had right. their own nicknames. They said, they said he was crazy as a bed bug because he would try okay. anything. It was gotcha. on a dare or just. If it came into his head, but as he got older, he started to dislike the name until he loathed the name. And anyone who called him Bugsy to his face paid the consequence. And everybody knew he didn't like the name, so nobody even teased him with the name. Not any of his contemporaries, uh, but the papers called him what they wanted to call him. The paper, okay. the, how are you going to fight? Uh, the, yeah. Uh, how are you going to yeah. fight newspapers? In those days, that was it. No TV. There was some radio. And, and the news came from newspaper, the newspaper, and from the radio. And if you wanted to see it in motion, you went to the movies. They had movie tone news, and they would show the, the news of the week. That's how people got their news. It wasn't every second of every day. And I can remember growing up, uh, when TV first started, the the news report was 15 minutes long. That was it. There's no 24-hour news. There wasn't I'd love to go news back to, go to that. Around. If we could just yeah, go back to that, yeah. Well, every yeah. everything everything now is such fluff that you don't know what's news and what's entertainment. So I assume none uh, of it's correct. I just ignore all of it. <laughs> Truly, I, I don't, I don't watch TV. You. I don't watch the news. I think it's all garbage. But that's completely over <laughs> off tag. But but I just wanted to say, because Bugsy, that I didn't know that story. And thank you for sharing that. So I'm sorry. Go back. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I had to know. So go back to what you were oh, sharing with us. Well, in the very first scene of the film Bugsy, uh, you may recall, and it's so easy to get streaming or just a VCR. Uh, the very first scene where you see Warren Beatty, he is practicing elocution lessons by himself while driving his car. And the reason for that is he had an, a dialect like everyone else, the, the Lower East Side, you know, like a Damon Runyon character. I've never heard his voice on the Internet or any place. I've never heard him speak. But he said way. She sounded like Damon Runyon's character, she, and she didn't. She didn't pick that up from Elmira in New York. She came uh, became part of the mob at such a young age 
that dialect rubbed off on her. Sure. So when, when Robbie uh, Sudway and I were growing up and all of his friends were at his house, uh, he there's nothing for her to say, what are you mugs up to? Or what are you guys doing? <laughs> and uh, But that's the way she spoke. And, and right. you can see it. You can go online now and see it uh, for her interviews. That's how she spoke. And, and that's the way most spoke. And that's the way they all spoke. Meyer Lansky and everybody spoke that way because they came from New York, the Lower East Side. And and Siegel was the only one of the tight group that was actually born in America. The rest came as just real young kids. You know, I didn't uh, know that. Three, three years old. Yeah, I did not know that. But you know, you and I we had our pre-interview, which was fascinating. I wish we could have recorded okay. it. But what I never realized, never thought to think about it. To be honest, you always think of you know, the mafia and the mob, which you told me are two very different things, but I didn't realize that this whole group was Jewish mob. Is that correct? Not mafia, mob. Hey, that's true. Okay. That's true. It was it was the Jewish mob because all the ethnic stuck together. You know, when the immigrants came over, like immigrants today, in Los Angeles we have uh, a certain section for Salvadorians, for mm-hmm. Mexicans, uh, for Guatemalans, little pockets of of uh, 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 commerce, stores, restaurants uh, for that specific country. But we have it all throughout Los Angeles, not just for south of the border, but for all over the world. So there, they were all kind of mixed in together. Now, now the Italians only wanted Sicilians for mafia, but they, they was, it was too small of an area. So they would accept Italians. The Irish okay. came in and they just wanted Irish. They wanted no one else. Now the Jews come in and what country are the Jews from? Well, the Jews had no homeland. They were no from all over the world. Right. Yeah. They were, Israel wasn't until I think 47. So uh, they had no homeland that they came from. They came primarily at that time from Eastern Europe. And when they came over, they didn't, they came over and they stuck together. Even though they came from different countries, they were Jews and they stuck together. And the, the, uh, uh, the, the rituals that they had, uh, Friday night services and, and speaking in Yiddish, which was easier to understand than just speaking Hebrew because Yiddish was part German, which a lot of the uh, Jews came from Germany. So, uh, well, that makes sense. In, yeah, so they would have a natural language, even though they didn't come from the same uh, country. So they, it was a, more of a religious pride than a national pride. And when they came over, it's like immigrants coming over today, they had – they had their own uh, customs and their own foods and their their own way of doing things. And that's why they stuck together. All of these separate countries are uh, immigrants who came over. They stuck together. It was like mm-hmm. a safety in numbers concept. Sure. sure. And so, and so that's, that's what happened. So when, 
when uh, Mo Sedway and Meyer Lansky came over, they didn't know each other, but they met each other as young kids. Now, when when kids, uh, the parents came over, of course, and they were trying to make a living to keep a roof over their head and to to uh, provide food and everything else. They didn't have time to look to see what their kids are doing or check their grades at school. They were too busy no. earning a living. Nothing and much so, has changed. Uh, yeah, so, so what they did was uh, these kids were running wild in the streets. Uh, there was no discipline at home. There was no discipline anywhere. If there was discipline at home, it was severe beatings. And oh. so they, they kind of went uh, congregated with each other. And uh, between uh, uh, Mo Sedway and Ben Stiegel, uh, there's uh, maybe a 12-year difference. Uh, there's not, it's not like one is an elder statesman. He's more like a big brother. And Sedway was highly intelligent, but not well-educated like the rest. Uh, but he had a high IQ. He had the patience to learn. And Siegel had a high IQ, but no patience. So <laughs> most of them dropped out in the sixth grade. They didn't go past then. And uh, whatever they learned up to that point, that all they learned as far as school is concerned. And so they uh, they would work and, and uh, they would congregate together and they would meet like kids do on the street. And the ones that got along with each other, they got along. But uh, Meyer Lansky was known as the, the mob accountant. And Sedway was known as the mob auditor. Uh, anytime uh, Lansky had a a business deal, and he had many. He bought many casinos, hotels. Uh, he always got the blessing of Mo Sedway. The same with Ben Siegel. Anytime Siegel wanted to get into something, he would get the blessing of Mo Sedway because Sedway was great with numbers. He had the patience to learn and to look at it and and make sure that the deal was good. And uh, just he was he was just. He was a patient man, whereas Siegel was, had no patience at all. But they worked well together. They didn't step on each other's toes. And the first person that um, Mo introduced his bride-to-be was Ben Siegel. He wanted I was to going to sure ask the- you about that. Mm-hmm. And, and I also, before I forget again, didn't Bugsy Siegel... Siegel wasn't he the founder or the creator of the flamingo? What he he did something big. I just can't remember what it was. He did something big, absolutely. But uh, a lot of people thought he was the founder of the flamingo, the founder of Las Vegas. No, that's not true. If you read history, you could see. Uh, I thought that was Meyer Lansky. Or am no, I wrong? Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky is a different animal. No, the person that started the Flamingo was a gentleman named Billy Wilkerson. Oh. Billy Wilkerson had a uh, was a phenomenal genius, a creative genius. Uh, one of the companies that he started is still going strong today, and that is the Hollywood Reporter. He saw a need 
for a house organ for the movies when it was still uh, silent films. And he came mm-hmm. up with the Hollywood Reporter. Gotcha. And then he opened up these high-end restaurants in uh, West L.A., actually on the Sunset Strip in uh, West Hollywood, uh, Ciro's, Trocadero, LaRue, all high-end restaurants where they, where he designed the decor, he created the menu, everything had to be the finest. And in the back of each restaurant were all-night card games. Only the high rollers could get in. Uh, the uh, the elite of the film industry, all of the the monarchs of films were in their playing, as well as mob people and and business executives. If they were invited in, it wasn't a big casino. It was like eight or ten chairs on a in a card table, a poker table, and they would play all night long. Wilkerson loved to gamble. So a friend of his told him, he said, it's better to uh, uh, to own the house because the house has the odds with them than to oh, play against really the house. Right. Yes. So he had a friend of his uh, in New York by the name of Sherman Billingsley who had this fabulous restaurant that was, I'm sure you've heard of, called the Store Club. And mm-hmm. uh and Wilkerson had a love of exotic birds. So he said, I'm going to open up uh, a casino. I'm going to call it the Flamingo Club. Oh. So he is the one who named it. Gotcha. And it was the Flamingo Club. But Siegel was in possession of the Flamingo by the time it opened, and he didn't change the name. Okay. So I, that makes my sense. opinion is that if he didn't change the name and he – owned the Flamingo when it opened, then he more or less named the Flamingo. But it became the Flamingo Casino. And that, it was a hotel casino. Uh, but Billy Wilkerson was an innovator. He wanted to put in things in the, in the hotel that he designed that no one else had. And the first thing he was going to put in there, the first one in the country to have this, a hotel in the desert, and a first-class hotel in the desert is always called a carpet joint. He wanted to put in air conditioning. Now, prior to that, air conditioning was for industrial use only. If you wanted a meatpacking plant, you could get it. He wanted to design it for a hotel. And he also wanted to put in shops, the shops from Beverly Hills. He wanted to bring them into uh, uh, into his hotel, he wanted to have fine dining, like he had in his high-end restaurants. He and he designed the whole thing where the casino was the focal point. You couldn't get from one point of the hotel to the other without crossing through the casino. So it, the man was a genius. He designed the yeah. furniture to go into it. He designed uh, because prior to that, they had card tables. They had write-in angles uh, on tables. He made sure that the the angles were padded, that they were rounded, that there were cup holders, that there were padded seats so a person wouldn't get tired of sitting. Comfort. They wouldn't know how long they sit. He'd make sure there were no clocks visible in the casino and that he would uh, uh, and make no sure windows. that uh, – And no, no windows. windows right? Yeah. 
so you couldn't tell if it was day or night. And okay, you lose so, all sense of, yeah. of perspective. You do. So I have to ask you, how did, I mean, he came up, and I'm guessing nothing much has changed. I mean, what you're describing was a blueprint for every casino in the world, I would think. But how did he lose control of it, and how did Bugsy Siegel get it? Very interesting, and that is in a, that takes up a, a good chapter in the book, not on how he lost it, but what went on before and what went on after. Siegel was, had a, a terrible reputation after being um, – he wasn't acquitted of a murder, but it was a mistrial. So in Beverly Hills, it doesn't matter. If it was a mistrial, it doesn't mean he didn't do it. And the people that he was surrounding himself with that he really is a killer. And they shut him oh, out. They wanted oh, nothing Lord. to do with him. So he was always spending time in Beverly Hills and L.A. And he, he said, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring back my reputation because he really didn't think he did anything wrong. He just killed a fellow named Greeny Greenberg and... He needed killing. That was all. It was part of an assignment. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You know, that's a whole other story, and I understand. We're probably going to have to have you come back because this is is really fascinating. But so so I'm Uh, guessing, without you going into a whole lot of detail, because I really do want to go back to B and Robbie and your friends and how you are one degree from all of this, but I'm guessing just from what you're telling us that, Siegel decided, okay, I'm going to have to relocate because these people don't like me anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else and do something fabulous. Is that about correct? No, no. No? Not even close. <laughs> Not even Shoot. close. I thought I had it. Okay, tell the story. No, no, no. They had uh, Meyer Lansky, Mo Sedway, a fellow named Gus Greenbaum, uh, Ben Siegel, had a hotel that they bought in Las Vegas because – uh, they wanted to get set up there and kind of test the waters uh, called the El Cortez. And they were doing so well. Most, Mo and Ben were doing so well at the casino and the horse book because uh, Ben and Mo had uh, a horse, uh, the horse book for uh, the racing wire called a Transamerica Wire Service and uh, for all of Las Vegas. And Siegel kept all the competitors out, and Fedway made sure it was running. And so they were doing great there, but it's hard to keep Siegel's attention. So he would spend some time there, then go back to Los Angeles and play with all of the Hollywood elite, and then come back again. Now he was shut out of playing with the Hollywood elite. He was not only shut out, he was kicked out of the the, – they voted him out when he was – when it was a mistrial for that killing, there are a lot of things that there's so it's so intricate and so much detail, but it all builds on who he is and why certain things happened. Uh, and it it took me uh, over three years to write the manuscript, already doing most of the uh, research. It, it was I just wanted to make certain that everybody who read it could understand every facet of the way because in the beginning where you made the introduction, it was 
part and is part of the American history as much as Valley Forge and anything else. It is part of the American history that is still with us today. And organized crime started right at Prohibition, and it was perfect for Lasky, Siegel, for all of the other gangs to come in and and participate in a major industry that the government gave them carte blanche to do, and and they did, and it was it was as tumultuous as any any history of of freedom. Uh, they had someone uh, named J. Edgar Hoover who was head of the FBI, brand new head of the FBI. It was a brand new. Uh, uh, Department for the federal government And Hoover kept saying There's no such thing as organized crime And he kept downplaying it Hoover was kind of a creep Yes he was (laughs) And it was because of J. Edgar Hoover That organized crime got a nice solid foothold In the United States And it's spread all over the world since then And if you don't believe me Just See what they talk, talk about uh, drug cartels. Cartel is a terminology used in business, and uh, that's where major companies would get together and set the price on different things and for wages, for products, and they're set the price. Even though they're competitors, they're setting the price, and and that's only one facet. But that's what the cartels did, and that's what they're doing now. Uh, you know, for drug cartels, but that—that's a whole different story. What I'm talking about is the 1940s, the 1930s, um, and I, my story starts just pre-prohibition. And the person who put uh, who put organized crime together was a fellow named Arnold Rothstein. He met Meyer Lansky at a bar mitzvah, and Lansky had the crew. Arnold Rothstein had the cash, and they put together the whole concept. It was all from Arnold Rothstein. And uh, Rothstein came from a a religious family, Orthodox Jews. Uh, His family was disappointed in him. They had plenty of money, but Rothstein liked. Uh, the turn of the cards Rothstein brought a lot of innovation He brought the innovation of organized crime He brought the idea of taking Shooting crafts on the street And putting it inside of a building With, oh. with lights on a table Lined with green felt That was his concept It doesn't happen out of nowhere Someone has to think no. of He's the one who started. So he and Lansky uh, were doing this from the beginning. And most Sedway was Meyer Lansky's chief lieutenant from the very beginning. And the top uh, American mafia man in the United States was a fellow named Lucky Luciano. Luciano that's right. Again, let's and, make and sure that the audience understands that there's a difference between mob and mafia. They're two completely different things. They may play well together absolutely. when they want to, but they're different things. They're different, absolutely. And you know something? You won't see called a Jewish mob today. They went for one generation only. 
Oh. You don't. It, it, yeah. There's no. They don't hand. The 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 Jews did not hand their illegal gains over to their family to continue one generation in and out, and that's what it's all about. Then so they, they didn't have a succession plan. Right, no succession not, planning. No, not a succession gotcha. plan. The plan was not to have a succession. The plan oh. was to have money and to understand the American way and go from there, but not for mm-hmm. illegal purposes. Right. Well, that's fascinating. I, and I, I must – did I miss the part where you explained to me how Bugsy got the flamingo? Because I was scribbling notes like crazy. Oh, yes. Well, no. no I, <laughs> I, did I did you explain that already? That. Oh, okay. I was like, where no, did it go? Where did it no, go? No, I haven't. <laughs> I'm going to have to have you come back. So, I mean, this is so – and there's so many – you know, strings to pull. Um, so let, let's cover cover him real quick because I really want people to understand why Bugsy Siegel, who you know was you were a friend of of Mo's family, why this is so important to you. But let's let's figure out. Well, tell me because now I have to know how did he I'll get a hold of the flamingo? I'll tell you how. Uh, when he couldn't go back to Los Angeles after being booted out of the Hillcrest Country Club as a member, which was a big shame to him, and being uh, uh, having backs turned to him on the west side of Los Angeles. Oh. All of his friends, after they said he really is a gangster, he really is a thug, we want nothing to do with him, They uh, uh, he spent his time in the desert. He There was no reason for him to Go back to Los Angeles. Now, uh, Billy Wilkerson came to, as he was he was building the Flamingo Hotel, and he saw what a great job Mo Sedway and a fellow named Gus Greenbaum, who was one of Al Capone's uh, men, uh, were doing with the El Cortez Casino. Uh, he said, uh, maybe I can entice them to come over to the Flamingo uh, Club when I get through. So he went over, went to Sedway and Greenbaum and explained to them everything. And it took a couple of times because the concept at the time was so outlandish, they had to really wrap their head around it. Well, Sedway caught on. He understood. And he also knew that um, Wilkerson was in financial problems. Okay, there he, it is. Yes, and so he went to um, uh, he flew to New York, spoke to Lansky, along with the five families, the commission, uh, which are mafia, uh, and to get funding. He knew how much it would take to uh, to build the uh, Flamingo Hotel, and so it was one point something 1.1 million dollars that was that was wilkerson's uh idea now uh siegel was still in las vegas and he gets wind of it and he wants to uh be a part of this so he and he and said we were very close and as well as lansky he said okay okay there's nothing else for him to do we'll have him part of it well 
after a while, he kind of wedges his way into it until he feels he's the boss. He want, And the reason it's so important to him is he wanted to show the people on the West Side that he was a captain of industry. This was his idea. He could make a success in the desert, and he would be welcomed with open arms back into uh, the west side of Los Angeles. And that was his concept. And so he didn't like to be told what to do, even though he didn't, he never had experience in building anything before. And so he, uh, uh, he just, at first he was listening to what Wilkerson had to say. And then he stopped listening. He wanted to give orders, not take orders. And where Sedway would listen and, and absorb uh, Siegel wouldn't. And so after a while, he kept uh, nudging uh, Wilkerson out of the deal. Uh, what happened was, was when they found out that there was a, uh, uh, Wilkerson had money problems and Sedway told Lansky, they gave uh, Sedway money to pay. Uh, no, they they told uh, Sedway they were going to buy uh, Eagles. Uh, I mean, uh, Wilkerson's portion Wilkerson. of the deal. Right. They they sent a straw buyer in. Lansky sent a straw buyer in, so it looked like an independent buyer, and they gave him the money he asked for, and for two thirds interest in the uh, hotel. And Wilkerson would retain creative control, and that's what he wanted. Uh, when Siegel came in, of course, the skimming started, and mm. he was stonewalling everybody as far as what things were costing. And so it went from $1.something million to over $6 million, and, uh, you, and he couldn't go back to uh, – uh, to the mob and say, I need more money, they'd laugh at him. They, Which they'd Wilkerson tell him right there. Wilkerson? No, no, Siegel. Siegel, oh. Because Siegel was, Siegel oh, was running out of money because he was, he was stealing so much. But he didn't realize it. But uh, his girlfriend, who he made, uh, he fired everything, everybody that, uh, that uh, Wilkerson had hired, and put his girlfriend on as uh, as the uh, uh, the person who designed the interior interior designer oh. of the hotel. Uh, she was going to uh, outfit it with the furniture and the wall coverings and and all of the antiques. And he didn't care what it looked like as long as it had class. Cared about it. it's got to have class. He had no idea what class was, but that's yeah, what it had to have. It had to have very <laughs> Of course. Of course. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm picturing but things it, in it, my head. I probably shouldn't talk right now because what's going on in my head is not nice. <laughs> well, the, one, one thing that, that she did was she ordered curtains for the entire hotel that uh, were not flame retardant. And oh. so – they all had to be taken down and new curtains put up. Uh, and it was, a, I guess, kind of a tchotchke hotel. But, uh, you know, because she, if you looked at her house, 
she had a lot of things that um, she probably took from the flamingo to outfit her house. She comes. She came from a uh, a blue collar background. She had no experience in decorating anything, and uh, and so it was she and Siegel. But she was she was stealing more money than Siegel. And how did she do that? Siegel put her in charge of the checkbook. And if you don't, if it's hard to understand, just take a look at the film Bugsy, and you'll see who is handling the checkbook. And uh, it's Virginia Hill. So it's it's a uh, it's a wild story thing, and we've only skipped the surface. That's all. We haven't really dug deep into anything. Uh, I'll have to watch that movie. (laughs) Yeah, I've never seen it. You'll see a lot. A lot of things in there. You'll see uh, an addictive personality. He's he was addicted to Virginia Hill, whereas he treated all his women like dirt. She treated him like dirt, and he couldn't get enough of it. And um, that's interesting. It's, it's yeah, yeah. Now, did you I, learn I, a lot of this from B. Sedway? Because you're you're sharing a lot of personal things that had to have come from somebody who was watching all of this. B said we was, yes, I did. And B said we was extremely observant. Like, and I, I hope it doesn't sound sexist, but most females are much more observant than any man. I agree. They notice things that a man would just gloss over. And that's what got him killed. She was observant. Okay. She, Let's talk about because, that. Sure. Well, the, the fact that uh, he spent his last night at her house, and she was in Europe at the time, and his own palatial estate was less than a mile away. And he had a maid, a housekeeper, living on premises 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The house was always clean. His sheets were changed once a week, whether he was there or not. He could go home anytime he wanted, and it'd be just uh, as comfortable as anything. But B knew what his habits were, and she took advantage of it. And yet they were as close as anybody could, could be. But he made one fatal mistake, a major mistake with B. He threatened her husband. His oh, friend. let's talk about that. Yeah, well, that, there's a lot in that, <laughs> but we'll talk about it. He was um, uh, he was uh, Mo had Mo Segway had to continually try to get numbers to satisfy Meyer Lansky on the East Coast and the Commission, the five families, because they put the money up for this. And they kept pressing Mo for numbers. Siegel was not giving up numbers. And the more uh, Mo pressed, the more belligerent uh, Siegel became until he confided in some friends, major gangsters, by the way, who were friends of Mo's as well as his, um, that he was going to kill Sedway. He said he was tired of all of this. Yes. He was tired of all of this, uh, that Segway was badgering him for numbers. And he, what he was going to do 
was he was going to uh, uh, tell Sedway, uh, he said, Mo, get in the car. I want to talk to you because they hadn't been speaking in a while. And they were partners in this. And he said, get in the car. I want to speak to you. He said he'd pull a bullet in his head. He'd take him over to the Flamingo and grind him up in the Flamingo's industrial-sized garbage disposal. He wouldn't bury him in the desert because there was an unknown, uh, unwritten law that gangsters never kill anyone in Vegas because the police would get down on them too hard. So he would grind him up. He said nobody would find him. And he related this to some friends who related it to to the one. Yeah. Oh, my God. So the people in, in Beverly Hills had him right. They knew exactly who he was. Yes, and you know, people in Beverly Hills, especially in the film industry, everyone deals in fantasies and illusions, and they thought, he's such a nice guy, he's so affable, he's so good-looking, he dresses so well, he doesn't have a thud mannerism about him. If he doesn't want to show it, you never saw it. He said, so it must not be true. It must be exaggerated. But then when they found out it was true, that the reason it was a mistrial on this murder trial uh, charge was that the only witness against him had been killed. Yeah. They said it was a suicide, but he had been killed. A fellow named Abraham Rellis, they called him Kid Twist. And there's a whole story on that. But you see, I go into every single personality. I go behind the scenes and every single personality. So when they do all come together, you see how they fit. And what yeah. I did was not just write about it. First, it was just going to be on Sedway. And then I said, well, it's more than just the killing of Siegel. This is, I'm, I'm going to just go to where Sedway first came into this. And then I realized upon research that he came in at the very beginning and uh, for all of them. So he was there from the beginning, uh, pre-organized crime, pre-prohibition. They're all kids together on the streets. And so uh, that's what uh, this was all about. He was, uh, he was an integral part. And yet this is the first book ever written on Mo Sedway. I spoke to. I, uh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. It seems to me like the story really does. The genesis of the story is really with the Sedway family. Well, not just the Sedways, and I called the book. The sub subtitle is uh, the Saga of Organized Crime in America, because this is where it started, mm-hmm. and it's and it is a saga. Uh, it kind of mirrors portions of Broad, Boardwalk Empire, where Boardwalk Empire starts pre-prohibition and ends. There's a date it, that it ends, and it's um, April 15th, 1921. And uh, you say, well, it never showed that date on the screen. And no, it didn't. But the events that happened 
showed the date, and that was the ending of the Castellamera War. And you may say, what is that? I've never heard of the Castellamera War. It was the largest war ever fought on American soil, and nobody ever knew about it. It was the domination of uh, the Sicilian Mafia against the American Mafia, because the uh, Sicilian Mafia had had strong influence with the American Mafia. Once that war was over, it was cut, and it was strictly American Mafia. You see it in The Godfather. The Godfather, uh, Don Corleone, he was an old-time mafia. They called them mustache peats. They dressed shabbily. They they didn't look – they looked old world. And if you remember in the film The Godfather, Marlon Brando was dressed – kind of a shabby guy. The only time he looked good was at his daughter's wedding. He was wearing a tuxedo. Okay, everybody looks good in the tux. But he was what they called the mustache piece. And he did not want to go in with the new the new order, the American mafia. His, uh, his son, Santino, they called him Sonny Corleone. Uh, James Conn played the part, wanted to get uh, the family involved in drugs. And uh, Don Corleone did not want to become uh, the family involved in drugs. The mustache piece didn't want drugs. They said it'll spread out to good families. And they said, don't worry about it. We'll only sell it in the, in the poor neighborhoods. They'll never come to the, to the other side of town. Of course, the mustache piece were correct mm-hmm. because, because once drugs once got drugs out there, got it was prevalent right? and it became almost hip. You know, you see rock stars talking about drugs and everybody saying, Oh, it's LSD and singing songs about drugs. Well, that helps promote it. And that's where it is today. Yeah, it, it very much is. So how did you said something a minute ago that really, I, I had to scribble it down so I didn't forget that, B. Sedway was aware that her husband had been threatened. What did she do after that? How did that lead, well, or did it lead to to the assassination, if you will, of Bugsy Siegel? Or what yeah, was she it, watching? It, what was she observing? Well, uh, this is what she observed. Mo told her. Mo told her, the fellow sold me. Individually, not together, but individually, and one never told the other, I'm going to tell Mo. They all told him individually that this is what happened. And Lansky said, when they, when they, uh, one of them even called Meyer Lansky in New York, he said, have Mo call me. And that's when it all started. So nobody knew what had happened and uh, or when it actually occurred but it was um, uh, it was a a concerted effort for B to save her family and and Siegel always told her he said never tell the the secrets of the family the family's life private and mm-hmm. she would never tell the secrets of the family she could have very easily gone to the police, told him, oh, Siegel is uh, threatening my husband. He's done this, that, and that crime. Go arrest him, which they would have. But 
that would be telling the secrets of the family. And somebody would die. Listen, I I have to cut you off because I know you've got to get to another call. I promised you five minutes. We're at four. So do do Uh, me a favor, Stuart, and come back because we're just beginning to touch on this. So I will let you loose. Oh, thank you, because I'm going to go back and listen to this and take notes because I think there's a lot more of this story to share. I'm going to cut you loose very quickly so you can go to your next call, and thank you. So you go ahead and hang up. I will say goodbye to our okay. audience, and then I'll call you later, and we'll get you back okay. on the show. All right? Thank My you, pleasure. Stuart. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Listen, everybody, this is to me has been a fascinating conversation with um, – Stuart Sabell. So I thank you all for for kind of sticking with us because this is not a business podcast at all, this particular episode, but I love history and I love to talk with people who lived part of that history. So before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes and honestly, anywhere else you can see your favorite podcasts and just look for your partner in success radio and take us along on your success journey. And by the way, if you have any questions for Stuart Sabell or for me, because we will pick this up on another episode, email me at mail, M-A-I-L, at yourofficeontheweb.com, and I will get those questions to him. Thank you, everybody, and have a terrific day. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, Contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.